You're listening to Line Break, a podcast from Shenandoah Literary Magazine. I'm your host, Jake Sirota. This conversation is with Leah Naomi Green, a poet and homesteader living in Rockbridge County, Virginia. Her recent and first book of poetry, The More Extravagant Feast, was published in April by Grey Wolf Press and won the Walt Whitman Award of the Academy of American Poets. I think we're striving towards towards joy and towards interconnection. Um, and the garden and the woods help us feel that. <laughs> you know, like everybody's doing what they can do given the soil they're planted in, you know? So I think now is a time when people have been seeking more intently alternatives to systems that they see as failing, both failing kind of full stop, but also failing them as individuals. And it it seems like something that you have spent a lot of intentional time and effort separating yourself from. So I'm wondering what, what part writing plays or played in your own moves away from these sort of systems? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I think that writing for me is, and for so many, is is a practice of attentiveness. Um, and I, I do think that that has a huge role in being able to um, disentwine from some of those systems, just in that uh, writing, that paying that kind of attention allows me to see, allows me to see, you know, it, it allows me to see that the that the world is still functioning. It allows me to pay attention to the systems um, that humans didn't make, which are still very much um, there and and still bear investment and return, um, and which um, which you know uh, aren't falling apart. Um, but also to which we are responsible, right? Um, so there's that, that exchange of responsibility and gift that there is in any real continuing relationship. And um, I guess that's the, that's the responsibility and gift that I feel in my relationship with the woods and the garden, which, which are the, you know, the teachers <laughs> of these lessons to me, at least the, the teachers that sort of, you know, the kind, the kind, the kind of teachers, the ones that slow down the lesson enough so you can actually get it, right? Like, I think the lesson is, is everywhere. Um, in fact, I know it is because people eat and that food comes from these systems and, and people drink water and that comes from these systems, um, and breathe air. And so, you know, it's everywhere and I'm just grateful to these. I'm grateful in part to writing because it helps with my practice of attentiveness to be able to um, learn some of these slowed down lessons that the, the garden specifically and the woods specifically and pregnancy, you know, have offered um, about these systems that continue. And, and yeah, and, and then once I can see that there are systems I can rely on, that I, that I can trust to carry me and my life, then it's just not, not such a hard decision to let go of the ones that are failing, you know, the ones that aren't, aren't serving me. Um, yeah, so I guess maybe that's my answer, is that it's less about rejecting the ones that aren't failing as it is about trusting the ones... Sorry, it's less about rejecting the ones that are failing um, than it is about trusting the ones that aren't. I mean, it seems like there's a 
pretty important distinction to me, at least between things that are failing and seeing that as a a risk, but also seeing that there is uncertainty and exposure to uh, uncertainty in our engagement with the natural world. Was that something that you s- had to be intentional about embracing and being attentive to? So you're saying that uncertainty is, can you clarify the question about where you're seeing the uncertainty? I mean, the, living amongst and in intimate connection with the natural world involves, I think, an inherent amount of you know, unmitigation. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason, I think your question was probably perfectly clear, and the reason I <laughs> needed you to repeat it um, is that I see so much more certainty in the natural world um, than I do. And, and you know, you know, because you once took a class with me that I don't actually love that term natural. Um, <laughs> uh, the, I, I like to think of it as the greater than human world, right? Um, because, because this term natural, this term nature sets up this, this clear divide, um, that there is this nature thing that humans are, um, inherently excluded from or have disappointed or however you frame it, um, yeah, I I do think it's important, um, to my worldview at least, to note that, uh, yeah, that this is a world we're very much a part of, and it needs us and we need it. Like, we cannot function without it, and it cannot continue without our um, care. Um, yeah, so I think that, that I see that those relationships actually um, as being... Uh, less uncertain. And and I think this is an interesting cultural moment where we're all becoming a lot more familiar with uncertainty, and it's a deep practice. Um, I mean, I was thinking about the ways in which we see uncertainty uh, as a part of our constructed systems as a failing, where we don't necessarily see it as a failing in our connections with the land oh. or with... Okay. All right. So that in times like this, in in the time of COVID, we see uncertainty as a failing of man-made systems, but we don't see it as a failing of non-man-made systems. Is that what you're saying? Essentially, and that people don't uh-huh. really att- attune themselves to being comfortable with the uncertainty of the greater than human world. Uh-huh. Yeah. Does that, does that resonate yeah. with you? Yeah, I think, I think so. Um, if so, so yes, there are there are certainly you know little uncertainties like, will will we have tomatoes this year? We don't know. <laughs> it depends <Right>. on <laughs> on um, how the plants do. Um, but um, but then there's there are much larger certainties that I feel like are in place in, in the natural world. Um, yeah, we'll have something to eat. <laughs> um, it may not be tomatoes. What are, what are you growing right now? Ah, um, we went into a serious garden mode when, when all of this hit. Um, so uh, we're growing all kinds of things. Um, mostly we, uh, we're, we're funny in that we, people always think that we are foodies and we're not. <laughs> and we're like, we're like boringly pragmatic about it. Um, 
So we really grow the things that we know we can process to store for the year or the things that don't need processing. Um, a few years ago, we grew like 600 pounds of butternut squash uh, <laughs> just because it, it just is, is, just sits there patiently all, <laughs> all, all winter. Um, yeah, so right now, let's see, we've got peas coming up and broccoli is starting to flower. Um, the kale is looking really good this year. Um, we're about to plant corn and um, cabbage. We have a lot of cabbage. We, we, love, uh, we love our sauerkraut, so we're growing a whole lot of cabbage to make into sauerkraut this year. Yeah, yeah. That's, the, that's the best way to eat. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned your, your children. I mean, so much of your work is and comes across and feels so deeply personal and intimate and revolves around so much around your relationships with your daughters and with uh, Ben. But I'm, I'm wondering how, how the, the broader community in which you live it kind of enters into the, into the dynamics of your relationships with the earth and the land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really deep question. <laughs> um, yeah, a lot of, uh, I think in many ways, this book, The More Extravagant Feast, really came together when I realized, I mean, it really came together through pregnancy and childbirth and when I realized um, that this this sort of somewhat abstract spiritual idea that I had always had about the garden and the woods and maybe more, even more abstractly, the earth, um, that I, you know, that it was me and I was it, the sort of interbeing quality um, was just made so, so unavoidably real by pregnancy um, when it was just like, oh, well, (laughs) is this my body or is this (laughs) someone else's body? Um, And then that that continued into nursing, like, oh, this is now, you know, in many ways a separate being from me, but in many ways not. You know, if I... It, it, it cannot exist independently from me. Um, and then that realization that that is my relationship to the world, <laughs> you know, that, that I am still in the womb of the world, that I am still being constantly fed and provided for. Um, yeah, and, and, and also the very physical proof of the garden, that, that the seed you know, very much to parallel the pregnancy. The seed is in the tomato plant, right? <laughs> I'm looking at these tomato plants right now that don't have don't have fruit on them yet, but they will. And the the seed in that fruit becomes this plant, and then the plant becomes the seed again. You know, it's the same thing, and it's just so. Again, like I ha- I just feel so grateful to have these very patient teachers in my life that are that just keep slowing the lesson down for me. Like, no, no, really, like you are just another living thing among these living things and your body functions in the same way and is just as inextricable from from these conditions so how how does writing fit into that process of concretization i mean it just helps me it's my practice in a lot of ways it's one of my practices anyway but uh um sometimes i think of it as a kind of um prostration if you will like I, I I just bow down over and over again in my drafts like until I can uh, begin to see the thing 
that I'm trying to see or feel the thing that I'm trying to feel and until I can begin to um, hear what it has to say. So writing, I guess, is for me the practice of relating to the things I want to relate to. Well, I was, I was going to ask you about if there was a sense of directionality to your, to your poetry and your writing, but I think that answer kind of made me feel like it was a forced distinction. So, what do you mean? Well, as in, is is there a is there a, a direction that you can identify between like, your poetic sensibility inflecting or overlaying I the see. the world, or vice versa? But that seems like a forced distinction now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm a big believer in in interviewing. I think, <laughs> um, and I think especially with with writing and any kind of art, or maybe any built thing, you know, it's just. Anytime we enter something that someone else has constructed, whether it's art or a building or a table, right? Anytime we encounter something that someone else has constructed, we're encountering their mind, you know, like the, and that's the beauty of art is that you can step into someone else's mind. Um, and that's awesome. <laughs> it's an incredible thing to be able to do. And I think a good book of poetry um, should do that, you know? It should be an experience. A, a moment to spend in someone else's mind. Um, and so, yeah, I do think I, um, in fact, I would venture to say we all, we all see our minds wherever we look. Um, so, is, so is poetry then yeah. in part a project aiming towards expressing the, the sort of inexpressible parts of your own mind, or is it a kind of I don't, know, I don't really know how to phrase the end of that question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that's the way good conversation goes, right? We don't, we don't have to finish the questions, really. Um, no, I really think that for me, the writing, for me, yeah, and this is really not true for everyone, but for me, the writing process is just um, a clear, delineated space where I can spend more time with the thing that I'm trying to understand. Does that make sense? So I don't, I, um, if, yeah. So if, if writing is a prostration, um, the poem is the mat, right? And I can kneel down and bow down over and over again on the poem. And I'm grateful to the poem for saying, you know, like, that's what's expected of you on this mat. You don't have to wash the dishes on this mat. You don't have to teach class on this mat. You don't have to, um, publish even on this mat like what what you're doing on a mat is bowing down and that's what the poem does for me as it provides that space and I can um, do that so that I can so that my mind can relate to whatever it is it's trying to relate to it's the it's the medium it's the tool <laughs> it's not the the product and there's even a poem in the book that says more or less the same thing that the the poem is the slag heap and what I keep I keep right so um, I write the poem to get where I'm trying to get I write the poem because I love what the experience of writing does to me as a human being um, and then and then there's this sort of byproduct that is the poem right is is poetry then something is there something distinct or characteristic about poetry that other forms of I guess liturgy don't have or is it something that just works for you yeah I mean surely both uh surely both and I think 
I think that um, my mind does, just sort of the creature I particularly am, my mind tends towards focus. And so I, I think poetry as a genre works really well for me in that way. Um, but I just wanna, I just wanna focus and do one thing really well. <laughs> um, that's just sort of how I am, and I'm that way in relationship, and I'm that way in, in, in writing. Um, and that is a skill that works better for some things than for others, you know. Um, I would be a terrible, like, project manager of a construction site, right? Like, <laughs> like I'm not great at a lot of things happening at once and trying to make them all fit. I am, um, my, my mind tends towards focus, and so I think um, I can do that really well in poetry. It affords that space of, of just being able to to um, smooth it over and over and over and over until it's round, you know? Right. What what do you think, then, is the relationship between attentiveness and inattentiveness? I mean, I'm thinking about uh, writings by Thoreau, where he's talking about walking through the woods, wandering, the, uh, the I guess, the attentive inattentiveness of tilling seven rows of beans and things like that. I mean, what is that relationship like for you between focus and inattentiveness? Um, well, Thoreau's a funny one, and, and I don't know if you remember from our class together forever ago, but Thoreau's, um, I have, I have, I have some beef with Thoreau, of course. Um, <laughs> I think he did some very important things, uh, for the environmental movement. Um, but I also think a lot of his work, um, contained in it the seeds of what has become our huge problems are huge environmental problems which are you know that we do see nature as this thing we have to escape to and we do see nature as um uh something that cannot coexist with society in very much in a Thoreauvian way and um oh man that is I think dangerous and I think has has been has proven really detrimental in a lot of ways um that we that we see it as an escape or something other than economy something other than society something other than culture and um yeah <laughs> that's why I tend much more towards uh Walt Whitman but also why I tend much more towards uh, a writer like Wendell Berry who who really says you know like uh we um Nature is <laughs> is not just a sort a source of art or contemplation. It's it's a, literally our source of everything. It's our economy. It's there is there is nothing without it. There's no pretending like it's something that's just for um, spiritual escape. And of course, there's all kinds of issues there with uh, classism <laughs> as well and accessibility to certain people um, rather than to others. So. Yeah, I know I didn't answer your question, but <laughs> that's what happens. I mean, as much as your writing can feel, I guess, brushing up against or adjacent to people like Whitman's or Barry's, it it, it also simultaneously feels to me in similar ways as theirs does, uh, almost theological. Um, mm. it, when I when I read your work, I kind of brush up against the, the, the phrase that keeps coming to me is like an agrarian theology. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how if well if that resonates with you and whether that is a manifestation of your own theologies and faiths appearing in your writing. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's my mind and it's not separable from 
from all of that, from my worldview, um, which has been hugely influenced by Wendell Berry and hugely, hugely influenced by Whitman. Um, it's the only reason I really even sent my <laughs> manuscript to this prize is that it was named after Whitman and that it was judged by Lee Young Lee, and those are both um, important spiritual ancestors, if you will, for me. Um, so... Um, yes, of course it is, it is those things, it's inseparable. I think there's also, um, clearly in my work, as in my mind, a lot of Buddhist influence, um, which is in some ways very distinct from the theology of, of Wendell Berry, um, and from, from Whitman as well. Although I think Whitman might have actually been, been more in line with a lot of Buddhist theology, but that's another discussion. Um, yeah. Well, it doesn't have to be. Um. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I've been very influenced specifically by Thich Nhat Hanh. I spent a lot of time at his monasteries when I was writing this book. Um, yeah, I highly recommend monasteries as writing retreats. They're a lot cheaper if you don't mind staying in a tent. And <laughs> um, really, really do that, you know, uh, provide that space of real looking, which to me makes for the best art. You know, to me that's... To my mind, the art that, that I love is um, is more more art than artifice in that way, right? So it um, it's the art that is shaped the way it has to be shaped around what it must say. <laughs> it's not it's not shaped into a shape to make a shape. If that makes sense, that's super abstract. But um, rather than building something to build something, which is what I might call artifice. Um, I feel like art builds something in order to contain a thing that must be said. Rockbridge sometimes feels like a, an odd nexus of faith traditions. There are a number of Buddhist monasteries from different traditions. There are churches, there are multi-faith spaces, there are Quaker communities. Does that kind of whirlwind of spirituality connect with you in a distinct way? Um, well, my own personal history is that I, I grew up Jewish in uh, rural North Carolina, which was absolutely an, an othering experience. Um, and then uh, I went to um, a Quaker school. My mom was the English teacher at a Quaker school. This is all in North Carolina. Um, uh, so, yeah, my brother and I got to go to this Quaker school for free because my mom taught there. <laughs> so that was this great, great, huge um, influence in my life. And then I ended up uh, leading backpacking trips for a Quaker program for many years um, and going to a Quaker college. So th there's that influence. And then um, my, my partner, Ben, and I met at a... Buddhist monastery in California, and then that has sort of become um, much of our practice together. So those influences are all in my life, um, but I, I think that they would be in my life regardless of Rockbridge County, and I don't at all mean to discredit Rockbridge County because I feel like Rockbridge County is a magical place on earth, just an incredible place on earth, and there's so much magic in my life that is a product simply of living here. Um, but I think the religious influence uh, pre-existed my time here. Your, your personal practice of working amongst the land and the ways in which you're still kind of 
mired in or enmeshed within the 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 processes of the modern world hmm. is that does that feel like a, a tension in ways hmm. no it doesn't um we don't have internet at home and so uh that means that sometimes i stay very late in my office <laughs> Um, where there is internet to get my work done. Um, but it means that when I'm home, I'm home um, and able to be present. Um, I mean, I think there's a tension between work and family, but I think that's true. And I, I think that's, that's, that's a problem that has clear, clearly relationship to capitalism and technology, but I don't think that's um, simplifiable in that way. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm aware of the ways in which I'm still dependent on man-made systems, but I, I don't reject them, you know? I think, <laughs> I think, I'm, um, I feel a lot of gratitude for, um, you know, um, <laughs> one thing we often joke about is, like, plastic buckets are so helpful, like, it's so hard to carry to carry water, for instance, in anything that's not a plastic bucket. What a great, helpful thing that is, you know? Um, and even when we reuse old bulk peanut butter buckets or whatever it is, you know, like, we're, that's a great thing that is a product of these systems that are in many ways harmful. But that doesn't mean that everyone or everything that comes from them is harmful. You know, I think that these are systems that are clearly not well. <laughs> um... And as as a person cannot be well, that means that means heal the person. That doesn't mean hate the person, you know. I guess I'll I'll, I'll finish by asking you who and what you've been reading lately. Um, I've been asked this question a lot lately, and I've been trying. To, <laughs> I, I I've given a lot of different answers. Um, as far as that, as an answer to that question can be taken as a recommendation, um, I think you cannot go wrong with Ilya Kaminsky's Deaf Republic, um, which was a finalist for the National Book Award uh, in 2019. Um, it's just amazing. It just does everything that, to me, a book of poems can do. <laughs> I mean, it, it sort of reaches the capacity to me of what the art form can do. It is both political and personal. Um, it is both beautiful and difficult. Um, yeah, it helps all of us to feel and see more clearly. Yeah, so again, that's Ilya Kaminsky's Deaf Republic. Cannot, cannot recommend it enough. Uh, yeah. And then there are always, always my old go-tos. There's always a lot of W.S. Merwin in my life, for instance. In a moment, we'll hear an excerpt of the Leeds recent article in the Paris Review, Return, Investment, Return. Then a selection from the more extravagant feast. All right, well, this is an excerpt from my essay, Return, Investment, Return, uh, which appeared in the Paris Review on April 13th. We are interconnected. Right now, we are interconnected by a virus. Infinite filaments made apparent between us, connections which are tethers, which are lifelines. Because I'm not abstract, my cell walls are vulnerable, semi-permeable. They are able to give and receive. 
Perhaps I love poetry because it joins in the world's refrain. Nothing is abstract. Every memory and feeling is contained by something. It is the fulcrum of metaphor, to relate the intangible to the tangible, the unknown to the known, and it's the business of the human brain. I think patriotism, and I see something. Fear is always hitched to what flashes behind my eyes. I have to keep reminding myself in this strange time that I don't know anything. The brain's first instinct links experience with expectation, and everything I learn this month hitches to something I think I already know and takes off. <clears throat> I love poetry because it translates the abstract to the concrete, the universal to the specific, and then translates it all back again. Poetry locates a specific person in a body, connected necessarily to all bodies, in all places. It's a signal between cells that connects the larger body, enables it to feel. The four of us made it home from the funeral to our place to shelter in. We are here now, planting, working, and watching the garden and the woods, which do not shut down, which still bear investment and return, just as humans do in one another. It's from here that I send this bottle to the waves. If there's a message in it, it's that. From here, I see systems that still function. I can see them, the seed, the soil, the streams and springs, the lives of animals and plants that have evolved in response to one another's needs. They are the systems we are all depending on from our disparate cells to provide the still unbelievable miracle that is food, the met need that is water. These systems are everywhere, no matter how visible. They are larger and deeper than any of the ones we are watching fall apart, and we're integral to them, and semi-permeable, vulnerable, able to give and receive. Our relationship to these systems, like any relationship that endures, is both responsibility and gift. They are still carrying us. We can still let them. So I, I thought this would be a good poem given our conversation because this is this is a poem in the book that's somewhere in the middle of the book really right right near the middle it's at the beginning of the third section, um, and it's it's about all the things you've been asking about it's about the relationship between my body and my children's bodies and the body of the world, um, so week ten plum one. My body, which has never died, has two hearts again today, and how many inside the second? This body, which has been planted in ears and kidneys, fingers and formed lungs, a person almost the size of a plum, unbecome, her own seed already in her. This body, which is two bodies and a thousand more in either direction of time, the wake of the present, has died 10,000 times, planted as it is in the mud where the plum must grow, planted as it is in the dew. Two, the moon may never have been a plum. Look at her, having dropped the dark robe of her skin, you would not know it. 
three. I tell the colored dove I am sewn, a body inside a body for the rain to soak. I carry her father and his mother and hers. The field adores the seed, affords the farmer who frets a task. Every flower faces away. I'm looking for what they watch. The path through the field leads to nothing but the field. The dove calls three syllables all morning, compassion, my daughter, all the night. Four, my own cells, planted by my father and my mother, who breathed for me for some time. The sun was their bodies before it was mine, was the bread and the fish their parents ate, and the steel and the ash. Who took the bread and the fish? I can't remember any of it. If joy is watching a person bear a pitcher of water across the field where you are working, if happiness is drinking it, then I will watch the leaves who watch the sun go without flinching, while my own heart opens and closes the shutters of my ribs every time. Thanks for listening to Line Break. Line Break is produced by me, Jake Zarota, with support from Shenandoah Literary Magazine. Special thanks to Beth Staples, editor of Shenandoah. Music comes courtesy of Arnav Srivastav at 909 Music.